The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Hey, good to see you. Lynette and I are incredibly privileged to be here with you guys, and um, we enjoy South Carolina and are grateful for what we get to do, but uh, we do miss you all. And uh, it's been a minute or two since we've seen you, and we're really glad to be with you. Um, and I'm grateful that Lynette and I can partner, uh, continue to partner together as we did here in ministry. Um, Venture Church Network has been around for like 75 years. Um, it's a network of about 1,000 churches broken up into eight different regions, and then we have 170 chaplains that we endorse that serve in our military and hospitals. And um, I get the privilege of uh, networking all of those regions together and coming alongside and helping uh, churches take the next step God has for them. Um, Morgan Hill Bible Church was started by that network uh, back in 1983, 82-83, and um, Charlie Yonkin came and, and helped plant this church, and then Lynette and I were privileged to get to follow them and be here, and um, the only reason we left was because we felt God's call and confirmed that call with a leadership here that God was calling us to serve in this capacity. Otherwise, you would probably still get stuck with us, but we're <laughs> glad to be here. I'm so thankful for Michael's leadership and his work in this church. And yeah, absolutely. Um, he and the board um, have, have just really continued to serve. And it's such a thrill to come back and uh, to see that the church is still about connecting people into a vital relationship with Jesus. And that that mission has not left. That is very much a part of what God is doing here. And uh, it's, it's fun to come back and see you. It's funner to come back and not only see you, but see the work of God and the mission God has for this church. And I'm so grateful for Michael's leadership and all of that. We're today going to be looking at John chapter 1. So if you have your phones or uh, whatever you use to read the scripture, and I think it's in your notes as well. We'll begin this talk. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. We're told at the beginning and end of this passage that Jesus is the word of God. A person's word is the ultimate expression of who they are. I'm sure as you go about town here at Morgan Hill, as you go around your job in the office and people you interact with, school, I'm sure there are people that you see all the time, but you've never met them. You've never had a word between you. You you have, you see what they drive, you see what kind of clothes they wear, you see them interacting with their kids or their family. You kind of know them, you know things about them, you observe things about them, but you have not met them until there's words that pass between you and them. And what John is telling us in this passage is, is that Jesus is that word. Jesus is the revealer of who God is. He was sent to this world to help us to understand who he is. And while, like other things, I can know about God, I can see things about him, I can read things about him, I do not know God until I have received a word from God. And the word from God is Jesus, John tells us. Without him, I wouldn't have an understanding of who he is. It's an amazing statement. It's saying you can't know God except through Jesus Christ. You learn a lot about God. You can know a lot about things. You can even believe in him and do things that you think he wants. But you can't bypass the fact that if you're going to know him, you have to meet him. There has to be a word between you, and the word between you and God is Jesus God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately by speaking through the word in a real historical man. Now, this doesn't mean we throw out our thinking. It doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to that. That doesn't matter. In fact, in in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek word for word is logos. It's the word we get logic from. Jesus is logic of God. Meaning God has not just given us a rational, abstract, watertight argument to prove that Christianity is true. He's given us a watertight person. A watertight person who is the compelling proof that God of the Bible and Christianity are true. It's not anti-rational, but it's more than rational. But you do have to have some rational thinking. You have to look at the claims of Jesus. You have to look at his life. You have to look at his teachings. And you have to compare that to how he behaved. You have to look at the accounts about his resurrection. You aren't being rational if you just dismiss all of that out of hand. You have to think. You have to look at the facts. You have to see how they fit. And if you're willing to do that with an open mind, you will find in the end Jesus is the watertight argument. If you're going to be serious about this, somehow along the line, you got to come back and ask the question, who is Jesus? Because every religious leader claims something, but Jesus is the only one who would actually claim that he is God. God actually put into history signs and markers 
so that we would know he is really true. Because the religious leaders in the world all would say, you believe about God, I'll show you how to get to God, but Jesus claimed to be God. The Old Testament is not just one book, it's actually 39 books written by 29 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And all throughout it, God is foretelling that he would actually send this one who would reveal the unseen God in a way that, would, that we could relate to. And he foretold it would happen in a specific time and location, like it would happen in Jerusalem before the temple is destroyed. Real history, because the temple was destroyed by General Titus in 70 AD and still hasn't been rebuilt. And looking at Jesus, the data of his life, his teachings, his claims, he claims to be the word of God. Do you want to know God, that he's real, to know him personally? It can only happen through his word. The word has to happen between you. Jesus is the word, the ultimate watertight, clearest revelation of who God is. But you need to see there's more than that. He's the word made flesh. Soft. The divine made human. More than that, the word became vulnerable. It became killable. It means God has become vulnerable. Only Christianity of all of the religions of the world says that the divine creator of the world has become human and therefore vulnerable. Jesus, the Lord of heaven, saw our need, saw our brokenness, saw this gap between us and God. And he came down, not at the risk of his life. The God of the universe came down knowing it would cost his life. He came down. The word became flesh became vulnerable, became killable. Look at Hebrews 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he would offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. One of the most fascinating implication is, is that if it's true that the God of heaven became flesh, then he understands you because he has been where you have been. He knows about you. That's why Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. He's been through what you've been, and good counselors have been through some experience that they have worked through, and they're able to translate to help other people in that way, and that's what he did. Why is Jesus the wonderful counselor? Because he became flesh. Jesus is saying something that no other religion wants to say, would dare to say that the God who created the universe is vulnerable, is hungry, is lonely, is homeless, is filled with grief, is rejected, is betrayed, is tortured, is unjustly treated. He experienced all of that. Have you been betrayed? So has he. Have, have you been broken? So has he. Have you been lonely? So has he. Have you faced death? So has he. 
You can go to him. He's the wonderful counselor. You can trust him. Go to him. He understands. He's the word who became flesh. God knows what it's like to have a big prayer turned down because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if there's some other way, let this cup pass from me. And he got turned down. God in the flesh means that when you're in trouble, God in the flesh means that when you are struggling, God in the flesh means when you have problems and feel like God is not listening, God is not answering your prayer, don't you realize the wonderful counselor has been there? You might say, well, I, I, Dave, I've gone to God. I was in trouble. I prayed. I poured out my heart. And he's not listening to me. He's denied my prayer. I feel like he's abandoned me, but he has not abandoned you. He's not. But Jesus did experience abandonment. He actually knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. In fact, on the cross, he was abandoned so that you would know you will never be abandoned by God. He experienced that. Have you thought about that? Because the word God becoming flesh and dwelling among us should frame the struggles that you have should frame the difficulties that you are going through. The fact that the word became flesh, that you can go to him with anything because he knows, he understands, he's been there. Are you letting that influence how you face your struggles? I'm assuming people still have struggles in Bay Area. I don't know, just guessing. See, Jesus' claim was not that he would show you the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus' claim is that he is the way and the truth and the life. When Jesus was teaching, he announces this new order of things, this, this new way in which this world would work that was going to be very different with how the religious leaders of his day set things up. He was somebody who was going to set people free he was some person who was going to set people who were captive free and considered this, that there are many people, maybe some here this morning, who feel captive to religion. You feel captive to a list of do's and don'ts. You feel like you've got to somehow work your way through some kind of set of rules. Otherwise, you can't have a relationship with, with God. And Jesus is breaking through all of that religion. And here's what's amazing. When John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, there were a couple of different Greek words he could have used for the phrase dwelt among us, but he chose one very unique word, and it's a word that means tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. It references back to the Old Testament when Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And God told Moses, if you see my glory, it will kill you. My holiness will destroy you. But he had Moses set up a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was the presence of God hidden behind a veil. And it was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of worship. And what John is telling us here in this passage is that Jesus became that tabernacle for us. 
He became the place of sacrifice. He became the place of the high priest. He became the place where the very presence and glory of God resided. He became the tabernacle. Jesus changes the story. He's now the tabernacle that enables us to see the glory that Moses couldn't. It means that Jesus is the end of religion as the world has known it because now there's no need for a temple or tabernacle because he is that tabernacle. There is no need for priests because he is that priest. There's no need for sacrifice to carry the favor of God, no rituals, no regulations to go through because Jesus went through all of that. All other religion says, do this, live this way, and you'll be accepted. Christianity says, no, 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 no. You are accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now you're free to live this way. It's not living to carry the favor of God. Think about it on your week this past week. How much of your time was spent on, is God love me? Or how, how, do I, how do I act? Or what do I do? And is God mad at me? Or as if we somehow have to carry the favor and love of God. Religion says, I do. Therefore, I'm loved. Do you realize there's nothing you did this week that will make God love you more or make God love you less than he loves you now? He's the end of tabernacles, temples, and sacrifice. We don't get a religion in Christianity. We get a relationship. We get a person. But here's a question. Moses, God's glory is perfect, so how, how do we see it? Because we are not. How is it possible that we can behold the glory that Moses didn't? God says it would kill you. But think in these terms. I'm sure that many of us, if not all of us, have been wronged by someone. Not, not just slighted, but you've experienced some injustice or in the way they have treated you. Someone has done something against you. And what does it result in? It results in a gap. There's this gap between you and that other person. And if that other person comes along and says, oh, I'm sorry. If it's a major thing, that doesn't solve it, does it? Maybe that's a beginning, but there's still a gap. There's still that injustice that happens. Some action needs to happen to close the gap. And often we don't know what that is. But do you know why we fill that gap? Because you and I are made in the image of God. And that's how people in the image of God experience injustice and evil. It, it is a serious thing. It's not something to be shrugged off. And he feels that injustice. Consider that the gap between you and I or the experiences that we have with others that have been harmful are nothing compared to the infinite gap between humanity and God because of how we have treated him, how we have denied him, how we have worked against him, how we are broken in our own lives, how we've treated his creation, how we've treated each other. There's a gap in all of our lives. It's called sin. The sin gap between us and God. 
And we think somehow, I've, if I'm a little more religious, if I do a little bit better, if I try harder, do more, if I be better, then maybe I'll close the gap of my sin and brokenness. But there has to be atonement. There has to be a payment. We just can't come walking into his presence. Someone needed to pay the price. That's why a tabernacle was needed. It was pointing to the gap. It was there to fix the gap. It was there for a sacrifice. It was there for a priest. It was there for us to be forgiven of the gap. And when it says the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, the tabernacle became the place of sacrifice. Here's what we're being told. Jesus Christ came to earth, God in the flesh, the creator of all the universe, as we've read, and he came here to be vulnerable. Why? So he could be killable. Why? So he could close the gap between us and God. Paul writes, he was made to be sin for us who never knew sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. That's why he came. He was the sacrificial lamb. That's why at Christmas we celebrate the glory of God becoming a baby, becoming an infant, becoming someone approachable, someone you could lift and hold in your arms, someone that you could would understand your brokenness and your failures as you walk through life. See, here's how the Old Testament helps us see who God is, his glory. Look at Hebrews 12. You've not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop talking. They staggered back under God's command. If, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight when he said, I'm terrified and trembling. That's the glory of God. Smoking mountains, pillars of fire, consuming fire. But scripture tells us that this unscalable majesty of God, this transcendent holiness of God, has become an infant, has become accessible, has become safe, has become embraceable. See, Jesus is a different sort of king and a different sort of savior because he doesn't express his message through power. He displays his power through suffering, through crucifixion, through dying, through losing on the cross, but not for his failures, but for mine. Not for his sin, but for mine. Not for the gap he created, but the gap we all have created. But then here's the kicker. Scripture tells us he rose again, three days later. No one else, no other religious figure, nobody else in all of humanity has ever done that. History does record there was a man named Jesus, who lived in Nazareth, was crucified by the Romans. We know that, not just from the Bible, but other sources have testified that. And three days later, he came back to life. The authorities are so freaked out that they 
pay off the guards because they have no body to show. And people saw him after he rose from the dead. At one point, there were 500 people gathered together interacting with this risen Jesus. And you could go and you could talk to them and they could tell you about that experience. See, it happened. A dead guy rose again in history. Our faith is founded on that fact. And what this means is because Jesus died on the cross, paid your debt, closed the gap, now God came into history, so now this life-transforming glory of God can come into your life. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld the glory Moses couldn't see. Listen, if everything I've said is true, it does mean there's no halfway work with Jesus. Because Jesus is the glory of God embodied. He is the word of God, the ultimate expression of who God is. He is the word of God, bringing us into the fellowship with God, with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the point. Jesus claims to be all of that. The Gospels, he claims all of that. He says, I'm going to judge the world. Only God can do that. I will forgive sins. Only God can do that. I will fill the gap. Only God can do that. He's creator. Only God can create. He's sustainer. Only God can sustain. And unlike the founders of other religions, unlike the other figures in the Bible, Jesus is not just a prophet or a sage. He is the God that every prophet and sage is pointing to, which forces your hand. When a man claims to be creator, Lord, and God, the judge of the world, the ultimate living true God, either have to decide he's a fool or he's a liar and a deceiver and very evil or what he's saying is true. You can't just like him. You can't just like his teachings. You can't just think he's a good person. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he's the Lord. It's really all or nothing. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus disciples had a friend that they wanted to bring to him, but the, where he was was too crowded. They couldn't get through to him. So they climbed up on the roof and started ripping off the roof, which is a good evangelism strategy. <laughs> and they lower this guy on a mat at Jesus' feet. And he's in this room with all of these religious leaders and the man doesn't say anything, but Scripture says Jesus looks at these guys, saw their faith, says to this guy, your sins are forgiven you. Now take up your bed and walk. Now how could he do that if he's not God? And how, why would he care unless he was the wonderful counselor? who understood that he was God who became flesh. He was God who became killable. He was God who became the sacrifice. He was God who became the tabernacle that was our sacrifice, that was our 
place of atonement, that was the altar, that was the showbread, that was all that that tabernacle pictured. He was all of that. So here's my question to you. I'm imagining everyone here has been at least somewhat observant that there is a God, maybe, and that this God is knowable, and you know some things about him. But has there ever been the word between you and God? Have you ever gone to the word, to Jesus, and let Jesus bring you into relationship with him? Because it will only happen when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you seen the glory of the forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers to you? This is not about just a rational argument. This is about a watertight person who came and is either lying, and if he is, he's not a good person, or either he's crazy, and we would be crazy to follow him, or he's God and he's Lord. Now, I do know that probably a lot of us have accepted him as our Lord. But are we living as if he's that king, as if he is that Lord? And are we trying to add to what he's already done? There's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 2, or excuse me, Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, Rejoice in this, not in what you do. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. Nothing you did today and nothing you did this week and nothing you've done in your life has contributed to your name being written in heaven. All the blood, sweat, and tears you have put into your religion or your Christianity or whatever you've done, not one of those writes your name in heaven. But right now, at this very moment, if you've met the word, your name is already written in heaven. And you didn't sweat any blood, sweat, or tears to get it there because it was his blood. It was his sweat. It was his tears that wrote your name in that book. And it's written there right now, which means whatever you are going through, whatever your challenges are right now, whatever struggle you have, you can frame it with the reality that your name is already written in heaven. You don't have to do anything for that. You can rest in that hope. You can rejoice in that hope. And you don't understand everything you're going through and you don't understand all this whys and wherefores and why these prayers aren't being answered and why these challenges aren't being broken through. But you can know this, that the God of heaven has written your name in the book of life. And nothing can change that. And you can rest in that. And you can rest in the fact if he was willing to leave heaven to come to this earth to be made flesh, to be made killable, so that the gap between you and him was restored. 
And you know, he does care for what you're going through right now. It does matter because he's the wonderful counselor. Let's bow our heads in prayer. So let, let this be a private moment just between you and God. And let me ask the question, have you met him through the word? Have you put your faith and trust in what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again? Would you be willing to do that now and just say, Lord, I know there's this gap between us. I know my sin has been a contributor to that gap. And I know Jesus died for me and rose again. And I'm putting my faith and trust in him. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. That as many as receive him, to them he gives the power to become the children of God. And maybe you're here today and you've done that, but you've been wrestling with the whys and wherefores of how things are going on in your life. And you've been doubting the love and grace and mercy of God or that he even understands. Would you just tell him that? And know that even in that, he's not asking you to prove anything. He just wants you to rest in the love and the grace he's given to you. And he wants you to walk through this day and through this week and through this life, understanding and knowing that you're not contributing to the name written in heaven. You are now getting to respond to life because your name is written in heaven. And because you have a God who loves you as he has loved you. God, we... Um, we need to be reminded of that over and over again. As Caleb said earlier, we are more broken than we could have imagined. And we are loved more than we could ever hope. I pray for anyone here who does not have the assurance that they are a child of God, that they would come to a pastor, that they would come to someone, that they would make sure they have that assurance in their heart and life that their sins are forgiven, the gap has been closed, and they now belong to you, their name written in heaven. And I pray for my sisters and brothers who are going through challenges and struggles or difficulties, that they would frame it in the understanding that they have a God who has loved them, not because of what they've done, not because of what they've contributed, but because he became flesh. And he tabernacled among us, and so we can see his glory, even in the midst of our struggles, that he's full of grace and full of truth. May we walk in that grace and truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.